radical, taking back our faith. Risk and reward is what we're talking about today. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 14. 1 Samuel chapter 14. As we're looking at the whole concept of taking back our faith and living out the faith that God has given us, it comes to the concept of risk and reward. When's the last time you did something risky? Something risky. And, and I guess risk is, is a relative term. I was in Coldstone Creamery. It's been a couple of months ago, and, and I was at Coldstone Creamery, and, and Kathy had gone down to Starbucks to, to get her uh, particular fix on what she wanted, and I wanted ice cream, and so I was at Coldstone, and there was an older couple in front of me, and they were kind of going back and forth, and she was saying, well, you know, you really, for your cholesterol, you shouldn't have so much ice cream, and you know, you really shouldn't have this. And he turned to her, and he said, and I quote, come on, let's be risky. Let's live a little. And he turned to the woman and he says, give me a medium cone with extra nuts. Boy, I mean, he grabbed life, didn't he? What's risky? Have you ever been haunted by the fear of living a life of insignificance? H.G. Wells, when I was growing up, H.G. Wells was one of my favorite writers. I just enjoyed uh, some of the science fiction that he did because it seemed so real and some of the things, the War of the Worlds and other things. But one of my favorites was the time machine where you could get in this machine, you could go back in time. And one of the things that H.G. Wells said in his, in his book, though, is that you could not change history. You really couldn't change the, the, the events that came along. Even though you tried to, you really could never change history. And I began to realize that we're all time travelers. Did you know you're a time traveler? You're just traveling one moment at a time. And and the Lord calls us to squeeze everything out of that moment that we can. Erwin McManus uh, wrote a book uh, about this, talking about seizing your divine moment. It says, if you could capture one moment of your life, which one would it be? Some particular moment in the past, a moment of regret? If you could take a moment, seize it, and squeeze out of it, all the life available within it, shouldn't that moment be in the future rather than in the past? What if you knew somewhere in front of you was a moment that would change your life forever? A moment rich with potential, a moment filled with endless possibilities. What if you knew there was a moment coming, a divine moment, one where God would meet you in such a way that nothing would ever be the same again? What if there was a moment, a defining moment, where the choices you made determined the course and momentum of your future? How would you treat that moment? How would you prepare for it? How would you identify it? When I read those words, I began to realize that we are all faced with moments like that. And the Lord says, to be able to grasp that moment, to live that moment, you have to seize that moment, and you have to risk. I I looked up the the word adventure, and the definition in Webster's Dictionary is a risky undertaking. And I think that Jesus Christ calls us to a life of unimaginable adventure, a, a life of unimaginable risky undertakings. And when he's talking to the disciples one day, and, and, and he has a couple of different times that he says this, but in Luke chapter 9, the disciples are talking, and, and, he, and he throws this out. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world? What good is it for a man to have the best retirement plan in America? What good is it for a man to have the, the nicest home in Reading? What good is it for a man to have the, the, the greatest family to, to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very self. In Matthew and in Mark, when, when this is given, Jesus ch- changes the words a little bit, and he says, what good is it 
for a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul. God says, I've got a plan for you. I've got this whole program. I've got this, this thing for you, this purpose in your life. Do you want to miss it? Here's where I'm going with this. I, I always try to warn you up front where we're going so you'll know. And that's for those of you that, that are going to hit the sleep control here in just a minute. But here's where we're going. We only begin to live the adventure God has for us when we realize the rewards that that risky life holds for us. We're only going to live the adventure God has for us when we begin to realize the rewards that God has planned for us in that adventure. And you say, well, I I still don't get it. Well, let's look at, in the Old Testament, the life of Jonathan. I love this story. It's one of my favorites. And we're going to ask a very simple question. The first question is, how can I live a risky life? And some of you are saying, I don't want to live a risky life. Pastor, I've seen you live a risky life. You broke a couple of ribs a couple of months ago. That wasn't risky. That was just stupid. That's totally different. I'm talking about risking something for Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about going out and being foolish. And I'm talking about risking something for our Lord and Savior who came at Christmas. How can I live a risky life? 1 Samuel chapter 14, we're going to look at verses 6 through 12. And, and just so you know, um, Saul and his son Jonathan have gone out and they're being just beaten up by this, this group of Philistines. Uh, and and this, this group kept coming over from the coast and they came and they just, they would do these, these guerrilla attacks. They would get them. They were always on the high ground. They were always where they couldn't get to them. And time after time, and it had gotten so bad that, that literally the country was at a point where they didn't know which way to turn. And that's the setup. Look at verse 6. Jonathan said to his young armor bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. That's not a nice thing he's saying there, just by the way, for, for an Israel, Israelite to say that. Come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised fellows. Perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. And listen to what his armor bearer says in verse 7. Do all that you have in mind. Let's get it. Let's go. His armor bearer said, go ahead. I am with you heart and soul. Not just on the outside. Jonathan, I'm with you. I'm going to do whatever you want me to do. Verse 8. Jonathan said, come then. We will cross over toward the men and let them see us. If they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. Now, when he says that, that sounds like really logical stuff. If they say, wait there, we'll wait. But what Jonathan is really saying is, if they say, wait there, we're in trouble. Look at the next verse, and I can prove it. Look at verse 10. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up, because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So both of them showed themselves to the Philistine outpost. Look, said the Philistines, the Hebrews are crawling out of the holes they are hiding in. That's about as not nice as what the Israelites were saying about the Philistines. They're saying they're little dogs or they're little animals coming out of their holes. Look at verse 12. The men of the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us and we'll teach you a lesson. And this sounds like you're going back to, the, to, the high, to high school or junior high to the playground. You know, come on out. Okay, I'll teach you a lesson. That's what it sounds like. But how can I live a risky life? And we have this set up, and Jonathan is there, and they've been beaten up, and Jonathan says, you know what? I'm fed up. 
I'm tired of the Philistines coming and having their way with us. I'm tired of always waiting for them to come and bloody our nose, to beat up on us and to take our crops and to, to burn our homes. And that's what they were doing. And Jonathan says, I've had enough. And he turns to his armor bearer and says, how about you? Have you had enough of this? And the armor bearer says, let's get after it. Let's go see what we can do. Let's go, let's go get back at them a little bit. Instead of waiting for them to attack us, let's attack. How can I live a risky life? Number one, be willing to try. Just be willing to try. If you want to live risky for the Lord, you have to stand up. And that's what Jonathan did. And I think it's interesting, if you read the, the verses that we didn't read coming that preceded this, in chapter 14, it says there were 600 soldiers. It is, they were 600 soldiers sitting under a tree with Saul. They were sitting idle. They were waiting. Only one stepped forward. Only one took his armor bearer with him. And you say, yeah, pastor, but maybe the others didn't hear what the Lord was saying to them. And maybe they had a good excuse. Well, they had a great excuse. They didn't have any swords. The Philistines had been so so horrible to them. They literally had captured so many times they had gone into their armories and taken all their swords and they were charging them even to sharpen their hoes and their, their farm implements. So the, the Israelites, it says, if you look back at chapter 13, verse 22, so on the day of the battle, not a soldier with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand, only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. Well, of course, that's why Jonathan went out. He had a tool. He had a, he had a sword. David faced Goliath with a slingshot. The Midianite army came to, to Gideon, and, and Gideon said to the Lord, let's, let's, or the Lord said to Gideon, let's get this army, and Gideon says, you know, I'm just fine threshing wheat here. And the Lord says, no, Gideon, oh, mighty warrior. And Gideon is looking around to see who God's talking about, because he's hiding from the enemy. And the Lord says to Gideon, I want you to go, and, and he keeps whittling it down, and finally there's 300 men with Gideon, and then the Lord says to Gideon, okay, take a pitcher in one hand and a trumpet in the other, and inside the pitcher there's going to be a lamp. If you have a pitcher in one hand and a trumpet in the other, what are you going to use for a weapon? You don't have any hands free. And the 300 routed thousands upon thousands of Midianites. There's no excuse. Oh, I have an excuse. I'm, I'm, I'm not well. I have an excuse. I'm not young enough. I have an excuse. I, I'm not old enough. I have an excuse. I'm, I, I, I'm, I just can't speak in front of people. I have an excuse. And people should listen to me and realize that that's not an excuse just because you can't speak in front of people. Do you understand? God says, I'm tired of excuses. Are you willing to try? Do you ever wish you could be invisible when God calls for a, a, a volunteer? God says, hey, I need a volunteer, and you're going, Joe Beck's sitting right over there. I can see him. God, you could use him. You're sitting there, and you say, I've never done that. Really? How many of you have ever been called to jury duty? And when they say, who would like to serve on the jury, what do you do? I, I have an appointment. I have, I have work. I'm retired. I'm too busy to serve on the jury. We have excuses, don't we? We want to become invisible. We love to remain anonymous. And folks, can I just point out, this is not about being in the spotlight. This is not saying, oh Lord, I want some big, magnificent ministry. Jonathan did this, and the others did not even realize that he was gone. Saul has to take a census to see who's gone when they hear this battle going on. He doesn't even know where his son is. It's not about being in the spotlight. It's being in God's light. It's being where God calls him. It's answering God's call. It's making your life count. And God uses those who throw off the cloak of invisibility to make a difference. 
In Isaiah, the Lord, Israel is in horrible shape, and Isaiah is prophesying. And in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah sees this vision of God in heaven. And after this vision of God, the Lord says, Then I heard the, or Isaiah says, says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? If the Lord came to you and said, Listen, I, I see the country's in terrible shape. I, if the Lord came to us and said, Listen, I, I see that the American church is in terrible shape and I need someone to go, what would you say? Oh, we have a pastor, we have missionaries, we have deacons, we have teachers. Uh, Lord, send them. And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And when we read that, it just kind of swells this, wow, that's so neat. Isaiah was willing to go. And the verses right after that in Isaiah 6, the Lord says, great, here's what's going to happen. They're not going to listen, they're not going to see, they're not going to understand, they're not going to know what's going to happen. And you say, well, then why would Isaiah have to go? Because the going changed Isaiah. The being willing to be obedient changed Isaiah. And even though Israel didn't listen, generations after have been able to read what God did through Isaiah, this tremendous prophet of God who was just willing and available and ready for God to use him. Folks, listen to me. It's so easy to come to church and sit here and say, oh, I'm so glad that the pastor, that the, the committee, that the deacons, that these people are doing this thing, and God is calling, is screaming to us today, who is willing to go? Who is willing to step up? Who's willing to step out? Who is willing to risk something for me? The key is to try. You, all, you won't always be successful. What could you try for a year that would be risky? I've got five ideas. I think, Lisa, do you have these? Pray for all the world. Would you, in the next year, pray for all the world? And you say, well, yeah, I can pray. No, I mean specifically for every nation. You say, well, how could I possibly do that? January 1st. This is my outline, by the way, for January 1st, these, the next five points. Pray for all the world. Starting January 1st, we're going to ask people to risk to pray for all of the nations that don't know Jesus Christ. Pray for all the world. Uh, how about number two? Uh, read through all God's word. You say, well, we tried that three years ago, pastor. You know, I'm just not a fast enough reader. Okay, risk it again. Say, well, pastor, it took me two years, but did you finish? Well, yeah, I did, but it took me two years. Will you step out again and, and read through all of God's word? How about number three? Oh, I like this one. Sacrifice for a specific purpose. Well, pastor, I'll give. I'm, I'm going to give I'm going to give in the missionary offering. I'm going to give in the manger offering. And $35. If you go to Applebee's with a normal family, you spend more than $35. And this hunk of plastic with a ceramic inside that will kill all the germs, that will give them clean water, will provide a family for two to five to seven years clean water. Would you sacrifice one meal for that? Would you sacrifice for a specific purpose? And you say, so that's a sacrifice? No, January 1st, I'll tell you specifically what it is. We risk for him. Number four, step out of your comfort zone. I'm not sure about that one, Pastor. Can you give me more details? No. The Lord may ask you to go to India. The Lord may ask you to, to go to, to Bible college, Haley. The Lord may... may allow you to, to go a different direction. 
You may be James Stark and you may graduate from, from an academy and go into a different field. Are you willing to risk it? Are you willing to step out? Are you willing to do something for the Lord that's out of your comfort zone? It would be easy just to stay there. The Lord says, are you willing to do something else? Here's a fifth one. Commit to weekly discipleship. In 2012, are you willing not only to show up on Sunday morning, but we have about half the adults that come to Sunday school. How about the other half of you? And you say, well, I really can't come to Sunday school. Okay, we have a women's Bible study on Thursday morning. We have ladies' Bible studies in the evening. We have men's Bible studies. Are you willing to do that? Well, aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of trying to wiggle out what the Lord wants you to do? And you say, well, pastor, this is too hard. No, this is little. This is nothing. Almost seven years ago, I was sitting in comfort in Holtville in a church where everything was going great. And people called me from Redding. I didn't even know where Redding was. I mean, I knew there was a Redding, California. I just knew I didn't want to be there. And you say, well, you're a pastor. That's what you're supposed to do. Guess what? You didn't know you were going to be here this morning either, but God has brought you here for a purpose. And he has a plan. And he has a program. And he wants you to be involved, not to just sit in the chair. January 1st, we're going to talk in detail about what those five things mean. Be willing to try. Number two, be willing to trust God's provision. You see, it's one thing to say, I'm willing to try, but it's another thing. Verse 6, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Does Jonathan's plan make sense? Let's go up and show ourselves to the enemy. Does that make sense? Levi, you just came back from Afghanistan. Did, if you saw somebody with, with some kind of armament on the side of the road, did you say, hey, I'm over here, guys? No soldier does that. That's insane. That's crazy. Hey, guys, we're over here. No, that's not what they're, that, what they're supposed to do. Not only that, in the battle, you always want the high ground. And it says that they were above them. They looked up and spoke to them. They had the high ground. You always use the element of surprise. Hey, folks, listen. Jonathan was more willing to trust the Lord than conventional tactics. Are we? Second Peter 1 is, has been a part of my life passage. Second Peter 1 it talks about the things that we're supposed to add to our faith. But in verse 3 it says, His divine power has given us some of what we need for life and godliness. Is that what it says? It, it says, His divine power has given us most of what we need for life and, and godliness. Is that what it says? Read it with me. His divine power, out loud, has given us everything we need for life and godliness. How? Through our knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and goodness. He's given us everything. Are you willing to depend on Him? Faith is trusting God enough to obey what He has said. Hope is having the confidence that God will do everything He's promised. Folks, you've never really risked unless you've failed. You've never really risked unless you have had something not necessarily go the way you think it's going to go. And you say, well, how do you know that? Because the Lord teaches us through so much through our failures. You've never really lived for Christ unless you've lived beyond your ability. I had all kinds of plans when I came to Crosspoint almost seven years ago. I had all of these big visions of what I thought God was going to do. Guess how many of them worked? None. But it was not my plan. 
It was never my plan. And the more that I discarded my plan, and the more that I just fell on my face before the Lord and said, Lord, what would you have us to do? Then he began to reveal it. And today there's a me in church that is meeting just the other side of this building in the chapel. And they have 50-some regularly adults that, who come regularly, and they have all these kids. And 10 of their kids yesterday sang this incredible song. And their choir, they had 29 in their choir. That's 60% of their, 60% of their congregation. That means 120 of you need to be in our choir. Do you get that? Do you understand what that means? We have people, and, and they're committed to this, and, and you think, well, it's just a little me and congregation. Why do you get so excited about that? Do you understand that they're having Tan's messages downloaded in Asia, in Vietnam, in China, in places where it's illegal to have the gospel? It's being downloaded, and it's being put on CDs, and there's, there's thousands of them now circulating in places where it's illegal to have that because of the technology? And the video of what happened yesterday with all the me and people is going to be splashed around the world through the technology. Do you understand what God is doing? God made YouTube just for Ton and the me and church. It goes on YouTube and it just goes crazy, the number of downloads that it has. Be willing to trust God's provision because his plans are so much bigger than ours. His ways are so much broader and greater than ours. How can I live a risky life? Be willing to try and be willing to trust God's provision. But there's the other part of this. After the risk is the reward. What reward are you living for? I have to admit on Christmas Day, I'm, I'm a traditionalist. We don't open presents on Christmas Eve. Those of you who do that, bah humbug. <laughs> now I know some people do it on Christmas Eve, and that's great. You can be wrong. It's all right to be wrong. No, it, it, I'm just teasing. Everybody's traditions are different, but I love Christmas morning, and I expect on Christmas morning to have presents. I know as bad as I've been, it'll mostly be cold this year, but there will be some presents for me to open. I, I love that. And what do we expect in our life today, in our society? Safety, security, success? Is that what we expect? What reward do we expect from this life? God says, I've got some different rewards, and I think you see that in, in the life of Jonathan. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 13. Jonathan climbed up using his hands and feet. How much can you use your sword when you got your hands and feet? He's having to, scram to scramble up the side of a cliff. Using his hands and feet with his armor bearer right behind him, the Philistines fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer followed and killed behind him. They only had one sword. In that first attack, Jonathan and his armor bearer killed some 20 men in an area of about half an acre. Everything against them. Wrong tactics, wrong, all, all the details were wrong. Everything was wrong, and they killed 20 men. Look at verse 15. Then panic struck the whole army, not just this detachment that was in this gorge. Those in the camp and field and those in the outposts and raiding parties, and the ground shook. It doesn't say it was an earthquake. There's a Hebrew word for earthquake, and it's used over and over and over in the Old Testament, and that's not what it says. It says the ground heaved, the ground shook. It's not the typical word for earthquake. And then look at the last sentence that explains it. It was a panic sent by God. What rewards should I expect? Number one, I can experience God's sovereignty. When did Jonathan and his armor bearer experience what God could do in the midst of the battle? 
When they're scrambling up the side of the cliff, it had to go through Jonathan's mind, this may be the stupidest idea I've ever had in my life. And that's when God showed up. The sovereignty of God. Why was this battle so important? Ronald Youngblood, a biblical scholar, says this, the gorge where this took place was seven miles northeast of Jerusalem. The city was in danger, and the city is the key to controlling the east and west traffic. So for for Jerusalem to fall, if the Philistines took it and they became hardened in, in Jerusalem, then it would be a terrible thing. Oh, but wait a second. Jerusalem didn't become the capital of Israel until David came around. So why was this such a big deal? Because God knew that Mount Moriah was in Jerusalem. He knew where he wanted the temple to be. Where Abraham offered Isaac is where Jesus was going to be offered on the cross. And there had already been prophecies about that. And the Lord wanted Jerusalem. Jerusalem was his. And this was his place. And Jonathan was his man to fulfill his will. The sovereignty of God was so strong, he had no idea what he was doing that day. He thought he was going out to take out a little marauding party. And the Lord says, I'm going to use you, Jonathan, to, to wipe out a whole army. Erwin McManus says, it becomes obvious the longer you walk with the Lord that his teaching environment for us is never the classroom, it's always our life. If you want to learn more about God, step out by faith, experience God's sovereignty. When Stephen stood strong for the Lord, the first, one of the first deacons in, in Acts chapter 6, I believe it is, when he's chosen, and, and shortly thereafter, Stephen stands strong and he gives this tremendous message And you think God's going to rescue Stephen, but he didn't. Stephen dies. He's martyred. And you think, what a terrible thing. This this tremendous message. And at the end of it, Stephen, like Jesus, says, Lord, forgive them. They don't understand what's going on. And he sees this vision, and he he says out loud, "I I see the Heavenly Father. I see God the Father. And Jesus standing at his right side, and they're gnashing their teeth, and they stone him to death. They kill him. You think, that's a horrible story. When Stephen was martyred, all of the believers who had clustered in Jerusalem realized they couldn't stay there anymore, and because of that, they scattered all over the known world, and the church was started by all of those people that God threw out of Jerusalem by Stephen's death. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that in most things God works, no, in some things, no, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God's plan is bigger than your plan. God's plan is bigger than my plan. And Satan's strategy to eliminate Stephen accomplished God's plan. Satan's strategy to to kill Jesus on the cross accomplished God's salvation. And I don't know what Satan's strategy is with you, but no matter what it is, God will use your life in a miraculous way if you'll let him. I've heard people say the safest place to be is in the will of God, and and David Platt refers to that, I think, in this book, and I've heard other people say that. Is that true? Is the safest place to be in, in God's will? John the Baptist was in God's will, and he was beheaded. Stephen was martyred. Paul was beaten over and over and imprisoned over and over again. Is the safest place to be? No, not necessarily. But to live outside of God's will puts us in a different kind of danger. To live outside of what God wants us to do puts us in a totally different kind of danger. But when we live in the purpose, when we fulfill the purpose of God, we become dangerous. You know why people, many people in our society 
are really getting afraid of Christians today? And that's really, that's got to be the reaction. They're afraid of Christians. Why? Because Christians are dangerous when they're following Jesus Christ. Because when God says it will happen, it does happen. I can experience God's sovereignty. Number two, I can bask in God's love. How proud of God was, uh, how, how proud of Jonathan was God? God's like this father and he sees Jonathan and Jonathan says, here, when they say, come on up, that means God's going to give us because it's the most impossible thing that could happen. And what do you think God said? Jonathan, I love you. Man, I just love it when this happens. Look at him. I think he's saying to the angels, look down at Jonathan. Look at this guy. Look at the trust that he has. Look at the faith that he has. Look at the, the, the dependence that he has on me. They overthrow not just the detachment, but the entire army. Verse 21 says some of the Israelis who had des- deserted to the Philistines returned. In verse 22, some of those who had been hiding in the forest out of fear came back. You see what happened? The, Jonathan not only defeated the Philistines, but he brought those who had deserted, those who, were, who were, had gone in fear, and he brought them back into the fold. God's love and grace and forgiveness were apparent that day. Was God surprised by Jonathan? Was God surprised by what the Philistines did? God knows the details and he cares so much about us. And in Matthew chapter 10, it says, God sees a sparrow when he falls. And, and I've always liked that, but I got to thinking about that this week. It means the sparrow did fall. The sparrow dies. But God knows it. And God, it says, counts the very hairs of your head. And I tease about that all the time. I keep God, I don't, I don't keep him so busy. I, you know, I I don't have near as many hairs to count as some other people. And when we get to heaven, you will be bald too. It's okay. God uncovers the perfect heads. The rest of them he keeps covered until he gets to heaven. Okay. No. God cares about the smallest detail in your life. The other day we were working on Friday and... Natalie texted and said, uh, we have the baby and we're, you know, if you can come over anytime and we've been trying to get there and, and I was there on Wednesday, but the things weren't working out and my schedule wasn't, and I was frustrated. I wanted to see that new baby. I love new babies. I'm grandpa. Come on. I love new babies. And she said, well, we're headed home from the hospital. Just did a test. Can we stop by? And, you know, since the, the timing just wasn't working out, I said, man, I hate for you to do that. But they walk in and there's just this beam on both of their faces. And the Mian people were getting ready for the outreach, and there was probably, what, 20 of them. And all of a sudden, we had this whole crowd. But Grandma, Kathy, she grabs the baby. Whew. Did I get to hold the baby? No. Yeah. Steve, you have that baby? What in the world is going on? As much as Alex and Natalie, I mean, I saw the love Natalie has loved this baby since the minute I think that baby was conceived, but she, there was just this love, a mother's love for a child. Alex, I'm not, not tearing down any of your love, but when she looked down at that baby, I saw the love of God for his son. I love that saw the love of God for me. I can bask in God's love. Jeremiah 31.3 says, the Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I've loved you with an everlasting love. My love for you never ends. My love for you has no end. My love for you has no limit. My love for you knows no bounds. I love you. Here's the third thing that we can, the reward. You can experience God's sovereignty. 
you can bask in God's love and you can rely on God's presence. I can rely on God's presence. Why did God allow the ground to shake? Why did he shake the ground? I keep coming back to to where Moses, and Moses comes before the presence of God, and there's this burning bush, and he he comes to see what's happening, why the bush is burning, and it's not being consumed. And the Lord says, take your sandals off. Even a quarter of an inch is too high. You're standing on holy ground. And time after time, when people come into the presence of God, all of a sudden they're smacked down on their face, and they're in reverence and awe. And the Lord says, do you understand what it's like to be in my presence? Do you understand what it's like to have me alongside you? Do you understand what it is like to go into the battle, to an impossible battle, and to know that I'm there? Hebrews 13, 5 and 6 is quoting from the Old Testament. It says, God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. And in the Greek, the never is there at the beginning both times. Never, never. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? I could rely on God's presence. Only in the midst of the impossible do we realize exactly how much God is with us, how important, how powerful His presence is to us. Listen, we're going to be persecuted, we're going to need His presence. In the early church, 10 generations of Christians carved out in stone, in rock, almost 600 miles of catacombs where they buried their dead because their graves were being desecrated and they met there in secret to worship the Lord under Rome, around Rome, and the catacombs are still there with many of the skeletons, the remains and the ossuaries of, of their bones. They're still there to remind us that it was with blood and it was with lives that we are allowed to worship today. And God says, I was with them. I'll never leave them. I'll never forsake them. I'll close with this. Yesterday, I, I had another illustration, but we got home yesterday. We'd been gone most of the day, uh, had choir practice, some other things, and we got back, and, and I had a call from my mother, and my mother said, where are you? I just need to hear your voice. My mom turns 85 tomorrow. My mom was up on a chair getting Christmas decorations out of a closet and fell off the chair and broke her, good news, bad news, she broke her left arm. Bad news is she's left-handed. She fell and broke her arm, broke both of the bones and then a couple of bones in her hand as well. And the cast is driving her crazy and, and she's really struggling with it and she said, I can't write Christmas cards. She said, I could write with my right hand but they'll never get delivered because the, they won't be able to see who it's addressed to if I write with my right hand. She's very left-handed. She said, I just needed to, I, I just needed to hear your voice. I, I just, and I was reminded, James Dobson, in a video many years ago, there says there comes a time when the parent becomes the child and the child becomes the parent. And your parent needs to hear from you as a child and the child needs to say to mom, it's going to be okay. Of course, when I called back, she said, well, you, I, I talked to your brother Tom, it's fine, and, and I'm watching my TV program right now. Can you call later? Kathy and I talked about, you know, she was climbing on a chair, and Kathy and I talked about that, and I was reminded, we, I was talking with my brother once before, and I said to, Kathy said to me, should we buy her a ladder? And I said, that's a little bit like buying crack cocaine for a, a, a cocaine addict. You don't give someone something that will hurt them, okay? 
My mother needed to hear the voice that someone would say, I love you. I'm 2,000 miles away. I couldn't be there that day to help her address the cards. I couldn't be there to help her get the decorations out that she never has been able to put up. I couldn't do the things. My brother's closer, but he wasn't there. My sister has lupus and, and struggling in some ways, and she couldn't be there. And, and there are all these other things, but, but she just needed to reach out to someone. She did say before she said, while well, I'm watching my show, she said, I, I talked to your brother, but more than that, I also prayed and she said, the Lord really calmed my heart. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. On those days when you're broken and you need to hear my voice, you can do that. Friday night, we were privileged to go with uh, someone who was very generous, gave us a gift, and we went to see Mannheim Steamroller and tremendous music, tremendous production. But in the midst of this, there was the song, Oh, Holy Night. They didn't have the words, but I heard the words in my mind, and I was watching, and then I just closed my eyes. I didn't want to see the production because as it was singing, fall on your knees. Oh, hear the angels' voices. Oh, night divine, when Christ was born. And I went from Reading Convention Center to heaven. Not literally, not physically. I didn't, heaven didn't open up. I didn't see a vision, but I was there. I experienced the presence of God in such a real way that when we got done with that song, everybody stood and we tried to talk and I couldn't even speak for a minute because when you know the presence of God, you, you, you just understand what that's like. You don't want to leave there. What's amazing to me is in Hebrews, he says, come boldly to the throne of grace and we can go to his presence time after time, moment after moment, day after day, run into his arms. He says, come crawl up on my lap and say to me, Abba, Father. That's the greatest rewards I will ever have to experience God's sovereignty, to see what he's done in this church in the last seven years, what he's done, not, not what I've done. To bask in his love, to be reassured, to rely on his presence. That's the most amazing rewards. And because of that, I will risk anything for my Lord and my Savior. How about you? Would you pray with me? Father, you've heard your word. And Father, I believe we're so busy, wrapped in our little world. We're so comfortable. We're so much in our own tunnel that we miss what you have for us. And we're the 600 soldiers still waiting for something to happen when you've called us to be Jonathan, to go out, to take the meager resources, to go against an, an enemy that is overwhelming, that we have no reason even going against, to watch you do what only you can do. Father, there are 90,000 people in Reading who need to know Jesus Christ. And we have one sword and we don't have very much strength, and we have convinced ourselves that you can't do it because we can't. Forgive us, Father. Make us the church, the mighty army of God. Help us to put on the full army of God to walk out today to do battle for you. Help us to, to try and to rely on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?